Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Good morning. Uh, The older I get, the the more I... Please be seated. I'm sorry. Um, The more I think that I might be um, ADD. There's a lot to keep up with when you're doing what Joe does every Sunday. Uh, And I I feel a little frazzled, so um, I'll take a minute to to get my wits about me. Uh, And I'll just jump in. This will be a meat and potatoes sermon. No frills. Uh, We're just going to get right to the point. I'm preaching this morning on the temptations of Christ. You and I and every human being on earth is made in the image of God, the creator of the universe. In Genesis 1, we read that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And if you think about this, and if you think about who we believe God is, this is remarkable. It's remarkable in all kinds of ways, but what interests me today is this. Because we are made in God's image, sin is not natural to us. We are designed to be a reflection of our holy creator and to find peace and joy in service to him. Yes, we sin, but when we do, we are doing something unnatural, not something that God intended, not a necessity written into the laws of the universe. Sin cuts against the grain of our human nature. It's unnatural. Perhaps you've heard the saying before, to err is human and to forgive is divine. Now, that may be true with regard to making mistakes, with erring, but it's not true with regard to sin. Sin is not natural to human nature. What this means is that the Christian message about sin is actually a part of the good news. Christian teaching on sin insists that with God's grace, we can actually change. It means that all the things we don't like about ourselves are overcome in Jesus Christ and don't have to hold us down in chains. The Spirit of God works to free us from the sin that holds us down. But if we want to change, then we need to talk about sin. And Lent is a good time for this discussion. It's one of the reasons we keep Lent every year. One of the great dangers we Christians face is in thinking of sin simply as a matter of individual choice. Some people think that every individual is completely free to make good or bad choices, to sin or not to sin. Faced with a temptation to steal, we simply choose not to steal, and we avoid sinning. Faced with a temptation to lie, we tell the truth. Regarding envy or pride or jealousy, the same is true. A good person will freely choose what is right and avoid sin. But you know as well as I do that things are more complicated than this. We aren't as free not to sin as we might like. The Apostle Paul laments in Romans 7 saying, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Who among us doesn't have some self-destructive habit that we just can't break? Or some inclination that we know is wrong but cling to anyway? Perhaps it's an inclination to gossip or to be unnecessarily cynical. That's one I struggle with. 
Perhaps jealousy eats at us, or pride, or lust, or anger. We can all identify with Paul. There are things that we want to do, but we do the opposite. And that's why these words are written in the Bible. And they remind me of a famous line from St. Augustine, one of my favorite, who just before his conversion prayed to God saying, Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. I love that. Uh, This is probably in the top 100 Christian quotes of all time. And do you know why? Because just about everyone can identify with the statement. We are conflicted about our struggles with sin. We want it gone, but sometimes not quite yet. Augustine draws on biblical imagery to show that sin is much more than individual choices we face in a kind of state of freedom. Sin is more like a flood that comes over us. Frustrated over his own struggles with sin, he cries out at the end of Book 1 in the Confessions, Woe to you, torrent of human custom! Who can stand against you? When will you run dry? How long will your flowing current carry the sons of Eve into the great and fearful ocean, which can be crossed with difficulty only by those who have embarked on the wood of the cross? Sin for Augustine is a raging flood. It's in family systems. It's in political and economic realities. It's in our entertainment culture. It always has been. It's in the educational system and on and on and on. The world, we Christians believe, has fallen into sin, and none of us are untouched. You see, the Bible and the whole Christian tradition tells us that sin is actually bondage. We can't just choose to avoid it any more than the Israelites could just walk out of Egypt apart from the intervention of God. God must part the waters for us, and of course he does. What we require and what God has offered us in Jesus Christ is salvation. This is what Augustine means when he says that sin is a great ocean that can be crossed only by those who have embarked on the wood of the cross. The cross for Augustine is our ark of salvation. The cross, like Noah's ark in the book of Genesis, will bring us safely through to dry land. So what does all of this have to do with Luke 4 and the temptation of Jesus. I'll get to the point now. What we discover in Luke 4 is that Jesus is the one person in history over whom sin and evil have no power. So while we can't always choose not to sin, we can choose to follow Jesus. Jesus is tempted, just like we are, but he passes through the flood untouched. Like the Israelites before him, he goes out into the wilderness, but he doesn't falter. He blazes a path, or perhaps you could say he parts the seas. And now we are free from sin when we cling to the cross of Christ. So I want to look at each of these temptations in Luke 4 more closely. The first temptation comes in verse 3, where Satan says to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus has just spent 40 days fasting and praying in the desert. So Satan comes to him and says, you have needs and it's in your power to fulfill them. If you are the son of God, as you say you are, use your power for your own satisfaction. Turn these stones into bread 
and satisfy yourself. But Jesus replies with a quotation from the book of Isaiah. It is written, he says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Satan misunderstands human nature, or at least he's trying to deceive us about human nature. He sees human hunger, but he fails to understand that we have an even more fundamental kind of hunger. Created in God's image, only God will truly satisfy. We've been carefully made to love and worship our creator and to feast on his word and wisdom. This is our deepest hunger. God has made us for himself, as Augustine again reminds us, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in him. The nature of temptation is that it lies to us about what we really need, what, what will fill us and give us peace. It fools us into believing that we can find lasting satisfaction apart from Christ. In sin, our desires make us restless, so we seek satisfaction in all kinds of ways that, of course, leave us empty. This is the way of the world, and those held in bondage by it will never be satisfied at the deeper levels. But those who cling to the cross will find that Jesus, the word and the wisdom of God, is not only an ark of salvation, but also, of course, the bread of life. Through Christ, our hunger is satisfied and our thirst is quenched. The second temptation deals with idolatry. Luke tells us that the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Here Satan gets right to the point. No longer does he try to flatter Jesus by calling him the Son of God. Instead, he shows him the kingdom of the world and makes it clear that he, Satan, intends to rule them. Bow down before me, Satan tells Jesus, and you can have it all. In other words, if you will just conform to my ways, if you will rule as a king fashioned after my likeness, not as the suffering servant, but as a despot, and a tyrant like Herod and Caesar, then I will give you the whole world. But, of course, Satan is only a usurper, and his power is borrowed. So Jesus reminded him that only the Lord God is to be worshipped and served, and that was that. For the third and final temptation, the devil takes Jesus to Jerusalem, and he sets him on the top of the temple, and he says, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written... He will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Here the temptation is to dazzle the crowds with a great show. Jesus is tempted to gather his followers through trickery and showmanship. How much easier this would be than the long journey to Jerusalem and ultimately the cross. Eugene Peterson explains this temptation like this. He says, Jesus was certainly capable of taking that jump off the temple roof. Why didn't he do it? Jesus refuses to entertain us with miracles. Jesus never used miracles as shortcuts or as labor-saving devices. His very occasional miracles were a way to show us the more that is inherent in life. 
a revelation of the depth available to us in a life of love and obedience. The way of Jesus is not a sequence of exceptions to the ordinary, but a way of living deeply and fully with the people here and now and the place we find ourselves. In this world, there are more than enough distractions. We're often tempted to cling to one false hope after another. Political promises that are too good to be true, get-rich-quick schemes, miracle diets, and on and on and on. We reach after salvation, and we often avoid the long, obedient faithfulness uh, that we know will bring it. For our sake, Jesus refused to turn himself into just another gimmick. Instead, he became the suffering servant on our behalf. He went to the cross and showed us the way of faith. Now, today is the first Sunday uh, in the season of Lent. For more than 1,500 years, Lent has been a time for Christians to think very seriously about the nature of sin and temptation. It's a time for comparing the goodness of God with the false promises of this fallen world. In Lent, we choose the way of Jesus Christ. So as we begin the season of Lent, remember that your baptism signified your safe passage through the flood of sin. Listen to this prayer from the Anglican Church's own baptismal liturgy. Almighty and everlasting God, in your great mercy, you saved Noah and his family in the ark from the destruction of the flood. Prefiguring the sacrament of holy baptism, look mercifully upon this your servant. Wash and sanctify her through your Holy Spirit, that she may be delivered from destruction and received into the ark of Christ's church. And being steadfast in faith, joyful through hope and rooted in love, he may pass through the turbulent floods of this troublesome world and come into the land of everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I'd like to end this morning with some words of encouragement from Father Joe. Just last week, he sent a letter to the church with some advice for practicing a Holy Lent. This is the kind of advice that will strengthen your faith, bind you more firmly to the cross of Christ, and bring rest to your soul. And remember in Lent, we aren't trying to save ourselves. Christ has already won the battle against temptation and sin. Disciplines of the Christian life are simply ways that we turn around and make ourselves available to God. In the disciplines of the Christian life, we enter into the presence of God so that he might go to work in us. So let's call this something like advice from Father Joe, read with a few additions and a bit of commentary by Father Brian. It might help if I were a little shorter and much funnier, but you'll have to take what you can get. Okay. Uh, number one, I, hope, I know you guys all got this email. Daily devotions. If you haven't already done so, be sure to take home the simple form for morning and evening prayer before you leave. It takes about 15 minutes to complete. The daily practice of prayer and Bible reading can change your entire outlook on life. So soak up the practice. In our epistle reading from Romans 10, the Apostle Paul reminds us that we are to live a righteousness based on faith in Christ and that Christ is near to us now through his word. If you want to cling to the cross of Christ, you'll find him in the word of God. Number two, make church attendance a priority. The most important act a person can perform to make his or her life qualitatively better 
is to go to Mass. The Mass, or Holy Communion, what we are doing today, is the combination of preaching, prayer, and the Holy Communion. These three strands, Joe tells us, offer God's most powerful means of grace for transforming people into the image of Jesus Christ. Coming to church is exercise for our souls. And remember, the church all throughout Christian tradition is like Noah's Ark. Did you guys know, by the way, if you've ever been to a cathedral or a church built according to Gothic architecture, the place where the people sit is called the nave. Uh, And it's called the nave because the nave, of course, is the bottom of a ship. And the church has always understood itself as being prefigured by Noah's Ark. So just as God gathered a remnant people into the ark uh, and remnants from all of creation in order to save them from the flood of sin and chaos, so God all throughout history gathers his people together in the church because it's in the church that we are, are helped more than anything else to avoid the bondage of sin. Uh, that's what we're here for. God gathers us here so that we can commune with him and with each other. There is no greater protection from the flood of sin than a lifelong commitment to the body of Christ. So come to church. Number three, practice forgiveness. Begin with the big one, that person who's done something for which you find it most difficult to forgive. Maybe you won't achieve total release this Lent, but maybe you'll make some progress in letting go of resentment. Then practice small forgiveness. The office worker who eats everyone's lunch from the fridge or the coworker who spreads gossip. You should be hearing Joe speak right now because these are actually his words. Forgive the person who cuts you off on the highway because they're late for work. Forgive the cook who overfries your eggs and the paper boy who leaves your newspaper in the wet grass. Resist the urge toward bitterness and embrace the habit of forbearance. Remember the church lives on forgiveness. We don't gather because of our own goodness but because we are forgiven and because we extend forgiveness to each other and to the world. We go out to draw people in. Forgiveness is the glue that binds us. Number four, practice generosity. Perhaps you occasionally drive by homeless people panhandling on the roadside. Try taking out $5 and giving it to one of them. Don't worry about what the person will spend the money on. Rather, use the opportunity to simply say to him or her, God loves you. I hope this helps. What's your name? And then as you drive away, pray for that man or woman. Remember, you might be the only person who prays for him or her on that day. Likewise, give to good works, big and small. Remember, the only way we can release the power of money over our own lives is by giving it away. Number five, give something up. And here again, hear Joe's voice. He says, oh, you knew this one was coming, didn't you? Yes, give something up. Many Christians give up things like social media, chocolate, coffee, or alcohol. Lent is a wonderful time to detox from some of the things that often get a foothold in our lives. So feel the freedom. Finally, number six, pick something up. Start a new good habit. Maybe you begin a journal. If you miss a day, no big deal. Pick it up next time. Record your prayers as well as your anxieties and your successes Maybe do some artwork or take some music lessons. Or maybe just change a bad habit into a good one. For instance, if you're given to cynicism, try being more charitable. He wrote that for me. Any new positive habit or activity might be the way that God helps you to change the way you see the world. 
And this is a good place to end because it is very good news. We are made in God's image and in the power of Christ's spirit, we can be changed. That's what Lent is for. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.